Hello and welcome to today's BJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from experts Raphael Behar, Aziz Naza, Jane Chirpik, and Robert Hasergian as they discuss updates in classification and risk stratification of myelodysplastic syndromes, focusing on the novel IPSSM and the future of MDS diagnosis. Hi, welcome. My name is Rafael Behar. I'm a physician scientist at UC San Diego, and I'm here at the first international working group for MDS in Miami, Florida. And with me are panelists that shared the stage with me when we just had a discussion about novel changes to MDS classification, MDS risk stratification, and germline lesions that can lead to MDS and other myeloid malignancies. So I'll have my co-panelists introduce themselves, and we'll have a discussion about what we talked about. So I'll start with you, Dr. Naza. Thank you, Rafael. Uh, I'm Aziz Naza. I'm a staff physician at Thomas Jefferson University. I'm Jane Chirpak. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And Robert Asurgeon. I'm a hematopathologist. Uh, I work at Mass General Hospital in Boston. So Robert, maybe I'll start with you. You had a really important discussion about the novel classification system for MDS coming from a couple of different sources. What are some of the key highlights that you presented to us today? So I talked about two uh, updates to the classifications that have come out. There are two independent classifications that have uh, been released. Um, so that produces challenges because we have two classifications we have to now understand. Uh, the good news is that both groups that develop these, they're uh, basically very similar uh, and they overlap a lot. So it's gratifying that two groups have looked at the evidence accumulated since the last classification have essentially come to many of the same conclusions and how they handle many of the features. But there are some different features. So I highlighted some of the different features and how some of the entities are handled, uh, some minor differences in um, how some of the genetically defined entities are, are, are created, and also some differences in, in, in blast thresholds that define a new group in one of the classifications, the international consensus, which I was involved with, which is called AML, MDS slash AML, an overlap group, which is maybe one of the more controversial entities that was created. So I went over the differences and also emphasized many of the similarities in the two classifications. And as I understand it, there were a couple new entities that were described basically on their molecular features, for example, the TP53 mutant group. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that was an entity that was based on some recent data, um, and again, uh, essentially identical in the two of the two classifications, defining a very high risk group of MDS uh, that has a uh, biallelic inactivation of the TP53 gene, usually through mutation and then a deletion. And um, it represents a very aggressive MDS subtype, and unfortunately, these patients have a very poor prognosis, and the hope is by identifying this group, maybe novel therapies can be developed to target this group, and um, I think it's good to separate these out from other MDS, and uh, I think it's an important group to recognize. So we'll be seeing this new classification put in place in the near future then? In the near future. As I said, both papers have been released recently. The WHO will be produced as a blue book later this year, and so I think certainly later this year we'll start transitioning to the new classifications in terms of our terminology. So Jane, one of the new updates in the WHO classification included an update to the germline predisposition genes or diseases. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So it actually is kind of a nice feature because before there was a table, but it was unclear exactly how to combine that with the underlying myeloid neoplasm pathology. So now it's kind of a nice template where you can put the uh, MDS AML diagnosis at the beginning, attach the germline variant at the end. It also, I think, leaves open the concept of 
chip or CCUS that are occurring in those germline mutations or potentially even some unique pathologies to those um, germline disorders for the future as we start to recognize those. Um, so the list of genes is expanded and then this kind of paradigm for how to attach these together um, were updated. And one of the things you mentioned is that we were probably underestimating the rate of germline mutations in our patients with MDS. Uh, how is it that you decide whether or not you're going to do germline testing in your patients? So I'm, I have experience doing this over time, and the MDS uh, NCCN guidelines have definitely started to uh, incorporate how should we actually do this. Um, so there are clinical features that you can recognize, including individuals who have a, another close relative who also has a similar blood disorder, um, a strong family history of other cancers, or the patient has multiple tumors themselves. Um, there can also be some other syndromic features like pulmonary fibrosis occurring with uh, MDS. Uh, is suggestive of a telomere syndrome, for example. So those clinical features are one way that we can identify patients. But now that we're doing much more molecular classification and testing, we are testing a lot of genes that we want to find the acquired mutations, like p53, but a subset of those are actually germline mutations. And so um, it, we can then scan the mutations that we're identifying there, those that seem to be heterozygous, uh, so a variant allele frequency 40 to 60% or higher, we can and suggest those patients should be getting germline testing. The challenge is always implementing that because there's a bit of subjectivity in it. Sure, it's understandable. One of the things I was struck by was that even patients who develop MDS in their 70s could still have a germline predisposition and may not necessarily have had a, a prodrome or something that told you that there was something wrong with their blood system beforehand. So uh, you mentioned the gene DDX41. How prevalent was it? Yeah, so about 2.6% of MDS patients in the, um, the, the recent IPSSM uh, publication had a uh, DDX41 mutation. There are several publications before this that pretty much in the majority of MDS and AML patients where you find a DDX41 mutation in their MDS or AML cells, almost all of those are germline. So it's a pretty, um, that one is much more clear. Um, a lot of the other mutations, they're usually going to be acquired but there's always a small subset and picking out which ones those are um, is really important. And besides the obvious implication for other family members, I guess there's a very big implication for people who might be potential bone marrow donors, right? Yeah, this is also an area that um, data is accumulating. What should we do? Is it an absolute contraindication? Um, because in the past, we didn't really do this testing. So there are examples of using someone who has a germline mutation and their um, recipient did well for a number of years and they might not have done well with MDS or AML if we just let them on their natural course without a transplant. Um, so for each one of these, we still have a lot of work to do to figure out should you do it or shouldn't you. The general rule of thumb is if you have alternative options, probably having someone who doesn't have that um, MDS or AML predisposition is the better donor, um, but it has to still be individualized, especially when there are a lack of donors. Makes sense. And Aziz, you mentioned testing for somatic mutations and how they can influence our assessment of patient risk. How is it that uh, we can best do that going forward? So I think uh, next generation sequencing becomes a standard on uh, all the patients uh, we, we see now with MDS. And, uh, 
through our work and uh, others, we, we have demonstrated that uh, the somatic mutation has significant impact on overall survival and uh, leukemia transformation. Um, and, and then the question, how do you integrate them with the clinical variables? Certainly, they have added benefit on the top of the clinical variables, but the question, how, how do we integrate them? Uh, and uh, how many of those genes have significant impact and how many should you include in the scoring system or not? So would you say that doing genetic sequencing is really something that should be part of the standard of care? I, I think so. Now we have more evidence uh, in terms of uh, the diagnosis of the disease and the differentiation between MDS and CCUS, but at the same time, uh, it could provide some prognostic impact. Now, is it beneficial on all the patients? Probably not, but, but doing the test might yield more information in terms of the diagnosis and the prognosis of the patients. And is it fair to say that we can use this information to reassess the patient prognosis even after they've been diagnosed, so perhaps after therapy or even further along in the disease course? Uh, potentially, um, although, I mean, this is a kind of a work in progress, uh, and how do you assess whether these evolving mutations, uh, we talk about some of those, whether germline they started already, um, and then what's really, uh, I think, unclear, how often do you monitor? Like once you diagnose the patient and you start the therapy, do you monitor those mutations? Uh, during therapy, uh, certainly in AML, we have more evidence of monitoring minimal residual disease have an impact on overall survival uh, and other outcomes. We, we still need to probably define this better in MDS, whether that um, minimal residual disease with some of our therapy that we have have an impact uh, later on on the disease and uh, survival. That makes sense. And your, your comment actually reminded me of something else that, that's new in the classification system. So Robert, you know, sometimes we sequence our patients because we think they might have MDS. We do that bone marrow biopsy, and the pathologist tells us that they don't meet criteria for MDS, yet they do have some of these mutations. So that now forms a new category that we call clinical cytopenias of undetermined significance, or CCAS, and now they're formally recognized, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, CCAS has been recognized in both the uh, WHO and the ICC classifications, as has CHIP, and I think the thing that separates it is morphologic dysplasia. However, morphologic dysplasia, as I said in my talk, is, is an imperfect feature, right? It's somewhat, to, somewhat subjective. Um, let me put it this way, if I know the patient has four mutations, pathogenic, high VAF, and they look at a marrow, I might see more dysplasia than if I knew the patient had no mutations. That's the, the real truth. So I think we have to combine them both together, ultimately, to arrive at the best uh, classification of the patient. But having the CCUS group that can be further studied, I think, makes us feel these patients at least won't be lost to follow-up. Once we know they have mutations, they'll be followed carefully and um, when they, until they transition to MDS by developing dysplasia. And perhaps when we learn more about that, we may actually broaden the umbrella of MDS. To Certainly may come to that, yeah. So I, I had the, the privilege of presenting the revision to the revised IPSS, the International Prognostic Scoring System. It was the International Prognostic Scoring System Molecular that uh, does what Aziz described, where it takes somatic mutations that we identify in our patients and incorporates them with clinical variables such as blast count in the bone marrow, cytopenias, and the number of blasts in the bone marrow to try to come up with the best predictor of a patient's prognosis. And this is important because we use this information to help us identify the best therapy for patients with MDS. 
So the IPSSM, which was just published a couple of weeks ago, I think will be a replacement or a, a substitute for the IPSSR that now incorporates additional information. And as you mentioned, that, that if somatic mutation testing is really becoming part of the standard of care, this is one of the ways that we'll be able to use that information in all of our patients. And I think it's a, it's a great advance. So be on the lookout for the, the uh, in implementation, I should say, of the IPSSM uh, coming into the near future and perhaps being incorporated into clinical trials, into NCCN guidelines and other things of that nature. I think it is going to become part of what we do for all of our patients. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and subscribe to VJHemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.